Just a note, this episode contains language that some people may find offensive. Welcome to the Apollo Theater! What's good, Harlem? What's good, New York City? I almost forgot to rub the stump. Not good. We're so excited to be here. Yo, you have no idea. This is really, honestly, this is one of the highlights of my life. So many amazing people have rocked this stage. Ella Fitzgerald, Mm -hmm. James Brown, Tito Puente. Celia Cruz, how many of you can repeat after me? Azúcar! That's right! I'm just saying to Shireen backstage, like, yo, Stevie Wonder peed in the same bathroom we peed in right now. Can you believe that? Hey, yo. For those of y'all who don't know, I'm Gene Demby. Thank you. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. She aight, she aight. We're the hosts of a podcast called Code Switch. How many of y'all have heard of Code Switch? Some of y'all ain't clapped. That's going to be the subject of my next therapy session. Uh, Yep, yep. Just because we're talking about race doesn't mean we ain't going to have no fun, right? That's right, we're going to have fun. We're already having fun, right? Oh, yes, we are. Some music, some dancing, some jokes. Um, first up, we're going to start with a, a poem from Denise Froman. Later on, we're going to talk to the award-winning chef, Marcus Samuelson. Then we have a little segment we call Ask Code Switch, which is when we get into your business. When we answer reader questions, we're going to be joined by the comedian, Ashley Nicole Black. That's right. And are you wondering who this dude is back here? Our percussionist, multi-Grammy-nominated composer, drummer, educator, this dude is a real SOB, though. He told us to call him that. SOB means son of the Bronx. Where the BX at? He's all that in a bag of chips, and his name is Bobby Sanabria. Thank you, everybody. Bobby, you've been here before, right? Several times, oh, yeah. It's <laughs> old hat for you. <laughs> I've been uh, privileged to be here uh, several times. It's always an honor and a privilege. But, uh, you know, uh, they told me to do something that uh, reflects what, I, what I'm about. And uh, I have a new album called West Side Story Reimagined. And everybody knows the mambo scene, right? In the right, gym, right, right. right? Everybody knows that, right? Where everybody yells out mambo. So let's see if you... Uh, if you either fake the funk or get down with me. Here we go. <laughs> Mambo! Mambo! Get up, come on! Oh no? Everybody repeat after me. Mambo, Mambo, 
Mambo, mambo Mambo, mambo Mambo, mambo Bobby Sanabria, everybody. He's here all night. Ready? I'm ready. Let's start the show, y'all. Piraguero, my first lover, the only man I ever wanted anything from. I sprinted half blocks for you, got off the bus two stops early, took the long way home just to see your rainbow umbrella. Oh, Piraguero, candy cool syrup guy, Boricua Batmobile, wooden cart pushing, bobsled poppy. When the viejitas asked for the tenth time whether I got un novio, the closest name on my tongue was you. Who else made me break my neck in two? Who else gave me so much for a dollar? Who raised tail when they nicknamed your island delicacy snow cone, or worse, shaved ice? I trusted you. The hallelujah work of your bare hands, the dirty white kitchen towel you laid over a fat block of ice, and never once did I ask you questions. <laughs> and when they pushed you off 9th Ave, when you packed up on 96, I only saw you after ball games on 131st and 5th when the hipsters threw ice in paper cups, added nutmeg and real ingredients like mint leaves. Call this, call this an upscale makeover for a poor man's treat. I wanted a shout out, no! Leave my man alone. Tell me, who else could turn a blue shopping cart into a 57 Chevy or a mom and pop shop Maybe the Elotero on El Centro, a Chudo ladies by the A-Train. Maybe my mama, once the nanny, who sold curtains for a couple upstairs, made an office out of her hands. Like my pops, who cut his saxophone until the velvet flesh of night rearranged the altitude of a palladium dance floor. And then a plump wad of cash, a worn rubber band, a 401k shoebox, which is to say, praise everything we build under the table. The underworld of workers and wielders, America's thumping baseline, the chorus of a country where two for one is the best hook to every good song I know. Like the way you turn my tongue into a red carpet, like the first woman I ever loved. Oh, Piraguero, you winter my whole mouth. You conductor of cool. You're the only one I know, the only one who can govern the thick heat, like a DJ scratching a glacier. You make the whole city rock. Thank you. Uh, Denise, before I ask you about that poem, which was amazing, um, I just want to drop your bona fides for the audience. Uh, Denise Froman is a New Yorker, born and raised, 
Hell's Kitchen represent, right? Represent. <laughs> she's an award-winning poet. She's traveled all over the world with her poetry. She's been to the White House. The well, New you got to tell him when, though. Yeah, that's oh, important. Go ahead. You go ahead. It I wasn't quite sure. I'll let you do that. <laughs> also, the New Yorican Poets Cafe in the East Village. You played professional basketball in Puerto Rico for four years? Point guard. Uh, point guard. You're a point guard, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she was a combo guard. You're a queer Latina, right? A Jewish mother, a Puerto Rican father. father. You try You're going to flip it and reverse it. Flip, yeah. Okay. You were the child of Puerto Rican and Jewish parents. <laughs> I want to know what your inspiration was for the poem about the piraguero. I, the piraguero. So uh, I would get piraguas like, you know, when the weather got nice. Like as soon as the weather got nice, I was looking for the piragua man. Everybody else was like chasing Mr. Softy. And I was mm. like, all right, y'all got him. That's cool. I'm going this way. So as I got older, though, I, 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 I realized that the piraguero was being pushed further and further uptown. Mm. And so it became a conversation about gentrification and about displacement. And for me, I'm always looking for the people in my community, um, in my communities who have been relegated to the sidelines. And so it's a conversation about what work is deemed worthy in this country. And street vendors, there were viral videos that went out like last year, mm -hmm. um, several of them, where street vendors were being harassed mm -hmm. and criminalized. And I wanted to celebrate um, these people, um, people that, I, that are important to our communities and that are trying to make an honest living. I mean, and obviously it's a queer love poem because it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, right? right? Like, we get, you know, when you're queer and you're trying to, like, evade the questions about, like, do you have a boyfriend from the viejitas, you have to get really creative. <laughs> and so I'm like, you know, it's just a piraguero. Okay, bye. <laughs> um, how many out there know what a piragua is? Yeah, let's talk about that. Huh, okay. Because you know it has, like, several names. If you're Dominican, it's a frío frío. Uh-huh. If you're a Mexican, it's a raspado, raspa, okay. you know? This is the Latinx community. When is it a snow cone? Never, to okay. me. Never a snow cone. <laughs> if you're a Philadelphian, it's a water ice. A water ice. Water. Water ice. Say it right. I have a little piragua story. Do you want to hear my Let's piragua hear your story? Words. Not to make it about me. <laughs> But my grandparents used to pick me up after school, and they would watch me. And we didn't have piragueros in Sacramento, but we did have the ice cream truck, right? So when my grandfather would hear the ice cream truck, my grandfather would run it down, and he would come back with the same thing for me every single time he ran down the ice cream truck. And it was a snow cone with red, white, and blue syrup. It was that red, white, and blue snow cone. I don't know if you know this one. Um, I never liked snow cones, but I also was taught that if somebody gives you a gift, you accept it with grace and, and gratitude. So I never said to my grandfather, hey, can you get me one of those Neapolitan ice cream sandwiches? Because that's what I really want. <laughs> and it wasn't until years and years later that I realized that my abuelo was getting me a piragua. That whole time, he was trying to bring a little bit of Puerto Rico and a little bit of his culture to his Persian Rican granddaughter <laughs> in Sacramento, California. 
I still don't like piraguas. That's okay. We're still friends. I still don't like them, but I love the sentiment of that. And I just wanted to share that story with you. Your poem reminded me of that. So thank you, Um, So you grew up playing ball here in New York City, right? You played high school ball. Knicks or Sixers? You live in Philly now. Wow. We're starting there? Okay. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, it's like your first love, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Um, sort of. It's a wrong answer, I mean. Sort of. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm born and raised in New York City, so it's, it's Nick's, you know, underneath it all. Underneath it all. Mm-hmm. You know. However. But I'm a Libra, and so I don't believe in the binary. Mm-hmm. And so I want to honor the fact that I do live in Philly, and you know, now we have Jimmy Butler, so I'm, yes! you know. I have no idea what they're talking about. Go Sacramento Kings, though. So I'm imagining you as, you know, as a teenager coming uptown to play ball at the Rucker, right? Um, and sneaking home and, like, secretly writing poems to yourself. Is that what you were doing? So I wasn't writing poems until I got, like, much later, until I got, like, to college. How did you start writing? I would say the New Rican Poets Cafe, the first time I went there, it felt like someone had kicked open a door. Mm-hmm. And then I watched HBO Dev Poetry Jam and saw like Lemon and La Bruja and Maida del Val and was like, I didn't even know you could talk about this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and then I started reading Sandra Cisneros and Nikki Giovanni and Audre Lorde and found Cherry Moraga and Gloria Anzaldúa. And I, you know, found all these queer women of color that were permissioning me to step into the power of my voice. And like many people, you know, I went to, had, you know, I went to public school here. And the way that my education was curated in a, uh, for a lot of us, um, writers of color are sort of like sprinkled in the curriculum. So I didn't have a curriculum mm-hmm. filled with people who look like me, talk like me. And so I had this very narrow perception of what poetry was and who a writer was mm-hmm. and what stories I could and couldn't tell. So I didn't think I could talk about basketball. I didn't think I could talk about growing up in a Puerto Rican household. I didn't think I could talk about my mother's accent or about my, my queerness, which I didn't even understand yet. Um, until I saw these writers and artists, until I saw spoken word, and that felt like the widest door, and that was sort of the beginning for me. And of course, I was a big hip hop head. So when I heard the Roots Come Alive album, yes, and I heard Black yes. Thought, and you know, for Top the youngins, for the youngins out here, we didn't have internet yet, mm. not really. We didn't have like genius lyrics and AZ lyrics and whatnot. So mm. I was like, tape deck, rewind, <laughs> tape deck, like, and I was. And I think the first, the first time I fell in love with language, I was writing the lyrics by hand mm-hmm. because I just wanted to see what they looked like and I couldn't Google it. <laughs> and so those were sort of the, the seeds that were starting to get planted for me. Earlier this year, you contributed to a poetry collection called Women of Resistance, Poems of a New Feminism. And your poem um, in it, the first line of it is, and I love this, so I don't want to get it wrong, I heard a woman becomes herself the first time she speaks without permission. And this is your poem called A Woman's Place. Is there a story from your life that you want to share where you feel like you really became yourself, where you spoke without permission? I think the first time I felt like I was permissioning myself and was stepping into my voice was one of the first times I performed at the New Eurekan Poets Cafe. I was 19. It, in fact, it was the first time mm-hmm. I performed there. And I was nervous because it's a New Yorican Poets Cafe, right? Pressure. And I had this love poem um, about this girl. And I was, I was changing the pronouns in the poem prior to, to performing at the New Yorican Poets Cafe. And so 
I just didn't feel like I could do that anymore. I felt like poetry was asking me to be my authentic self and it was giving me the strength to do that. And so the first time I came out was in a poem at the New York Poets Cafe. Jeez. And I remember feeling like every step I took after that moment, it was, a, it was sort of a, a make or break moment for me personally, that my life, my personal life, had to live in alignment with what I was writing. Mm. And I couldn't sort of separate the two anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like that moment at the New York Poets Cafe sort of permissioned a lot of other things that happened in my life after that. There are less high stakes ways to come out though, right? I mean. <laughs> true, that's true. Was um, your mom in the audience? No, 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 she wasn't. But she found, you know, I told her soon after. Um, and we had that conversation. But I think I started, I started writing because I didn't want to feel alone. Mm -hmm. And I started performing even more for that reason. There's something about me being with you in real time, us being together, that it's a communal experience. See, I don't think the performance happens where the performer is standing on the stage. I think it happens in the space between the audience and the performer, what we create together. Mm -hmm. And so that was what I was wanting to walk toward. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk to you about one of your poems. It's called Dear Straight People. Uh, in it, you write, Dear straight people, you make young poets make bad edits. What do you mean by that? I was referring back to that moment that I had, you know? Yeah. That was referring back to, because to, I'd never sort of told that story um, out loud about me coming out in that poem. So that moment was me thinking about all the times that I had silenced myself and a lot of young queer people, um, particularly a lot of young queer girls of color. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not the high femme Latina stereotype. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm androgynous and I sort of break all of, you know, I'm living on all these fault lines. And so I didn't really see myself you know, in media or in the books that I was reading. And so I sort of wanted, because I work with young people all the time, I was having all these conversations with, with young folks who were sort of questioning their sexuality um, and walking toward their authentic selves. And so I wanted to talk about how, as a culture, um, we make it hard for young people to come out there's only a coming out process because we have um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, have this preconceived idea of, of how you're supposed to be in the world. We inherit all of this stuff when we're born, yep. right? And a lot of it, some of it works for us, but a lot of it doesn't. And what young people don't know and what I didn't know was that I had agency. Um, and so I wanted to sort of talk to them. You helped organize something called Poets for Puerto Rico. And... You do poetry readings across the country where you try it and get people to understand what's going on in Puerto Rico, not just the natural disaster in Puerto Rico, but also the political disaster in, in Puerto Rico. And we just wanted to know, what do you think poetry and art can do that other types of activism can't? That's a great question. So Ursula Lee Gunn gave this wonderful interview in AWP magazine. And she said that um, in order to restructure, I'm paraphrasing her, she said in order to restructure society, we have to restructure the English language. We can't have a new world in an old language. Mm. And so I think about the role that poetry can play um, in reimagining the world that we deserve, because I think everybody would agree that we deserve something better than what we got right now. Yeah? Mm -hmm. We deserve something a whole lot better. 
than what we have right now. And so I think there's something special. I think about a Martina Espada poem that is very well known, Imagine the Angels of Bread, where he's saying, this is the year. This is the year that, and he sort of, this is the refrain, this is the year that, that he repeats, um, where those who have been oppressed and have been violated and have been relegated to the margins, right? right this is the year that, that that's no longer true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that poetry can sort of galvanize our imaginations, our radical minds, our radical imaginations to dream up something better. Um, and I'm really grateful for, for the movement Poets for Puerto Rico. Willie Perdomo founded it, um, myself, Noel Quinones, and a bunch of other Puerto Rican poets around the country we started to just pull up our, you know, pull up our sleeves, and, and we were putting on these poetry benefit readings and raised 20 grand for grassroots frontline organizers that were working directly with those most affected on the island. But you know, it's it's easier to raise money than it is to raise power, mm. and I think poetry is is part of the raising the power. It is the raising the power to me, because um, we want to raise funds, but we also want to raise consciousness because we don't learn about Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. You know, and I loved the show that you did on the other storm because that's exactly what this hurricane uncovered. Right? It wasn't just a natural disaster, but a man-made one. Mm-hmm. Right? And so we need to start looking at the colonial relationship between the United States and the island, because the people of Puerto Rico were failed by two governments. Mm-hmm. They were failed by the Puerto Rican government and the United States government. And as a Puerto Rican living on a stateside, I feel a particular sense of responsibility right, um, and calling to stand in solidarity with my family, my brothers and sisters that are living on the island. On that note, you want to go out with a poem. Yeah. What's the title of the poem? The title of the poem is called Puertopia, which is lifted from a New York Times article um, that was written last year, I believe, called Making a Crypto Utopia in Puerto Rico. Mm. So there are all these investors coming from California who are vulture capitalists looking up, looking to make a, I mean, we're keeping it real. Um, <laughs> looking to, you know, seeing an opportunity where there is devastation. Mm-hmm. Right? Naomi Klein calls this disaster capitalism. So this poem, um, Puertopia, comes from the first name that these investors wanted to, they want to build their own city in Puerto Rico. They want their own hotels. They want their own airports. Wow. And so they, they wanted to call it Puerts, Puertopia. And mm-hmm. so I'm a poet, so I'm, I'm looking up etymology. And Puerto yeah. in English obviously means port. Etymologically, um, it's rooted in Latin, which means gateway or door. Yeah. And utopia means nowhere. So Portopia actually means doorway, uh, doorway or gateway to nowhere. So this is the poem. Portopia. The cockies don't sing anymore. They click. Mosquitoes turn drone. Metropolis of crypto bro. Tax deductible greed. A door opens. An island drowns. A playground emerges. A boy, his toy. Depending on the faith, the most dangerous part of a wealthy man is his index finger. What he points to, who he lands on, a civilization, disposable income, pirate in cargo short, new world, old order. Meanwhile, we, diaspora, separated by sea, feel platanos and cut them on the same angle our mothers taught us to clap when the plane lands on either shore. Now, the beaches are gated, and no one knows the names of the dead. Now, investors clean their beaks in the river, and this is how a man becomes a flood. Landlord of nothing, king of no good sky, watch paradise misbehave. 
Watch the night pearl into a necklace of fists. Watch this El Junque, a real god machine, unhinge her jaw and swallow the flock. Where are the Puerto Ricans, huh? Cuchifrito, ghost town, battery-operated citizenship. An island is not a tarmac. A disaster is not a destination. Denise Froman, everybody. Thank you, Denise. with Denise. Amazing. You ready for a nice guest? Ready? Marcus Samuelson is the acclaimed chef behind Red Rooster, which is right here in Harlem. Right around the corner. Uh, th that's right. Mm -hmm. His other restaurants include, and there are many more, uh, Ginny's Supper Club, uh, Street Bird Rotisserie, and the next time you're in Gothenburg, Sweden. Shout out to Gothenburg. <laughs> Go holler at his restaurant, Norda Bar and Grill. Uh, he won a James Beard Award for Best Chef in New York City. He actually has a grip of James Beard Awards because he's an overachieving-ass immigrant. Uh, <laughs> you've probably seen him all over the Food Network. Yes, or if you're a PBS lover like me, shout out to the This Old House Army. Where are you at? Where my house is at? I bet that was never, ever said in Nobody's the Apollo ever, ever before. <laughs> Yeah, but it, if you watch PBS like me, you've seen his show. It's a travel and food show. It's called No Passport Required. <laughs> Apollo, let's get rocking for Marcus Samuelson. <laughs> It's so amazing. We were actually warned. Like, your assistant warned us. They were like, yo, just so you know, he dresses ass off. <laughs> so, you look very good. You look so excellent. We appreciate the ensemble. This is so cool to have the podcast here at the Apollo. Oh, know, this right? is amazing. It's bananas. Like, that's a sense of arrival, right? Right? Do you think so? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I watched like hours and hours of No Passport Required Thank to prep you. for this interview. Yeah. I did my homework. Yeah. And um, Marcus travels all over. He eats delicious food. And by the end of it, you're like, oh, my God, I need something to eat right now. I was salivating the entire time. <laughs> I do have to know, what was the best thing you ate? Making that, and you cannot be yeah, diplomatic. Don't you can't no, no, no. Mr. Nice Marcus. I know. I know. Everything I, was good in its own way. Don't. No, do I had the best. I would say the best food was actually in Chicago. The Mexican food <gasps> in Chicago. Mitokaya, Diana. Anytime you go to Chicago now, you should go and visit this incredible chef. Uh, talk about agency and authority. And I didn't even know. I learned so much on the show. I didn't even know the second largest Mexican community. Uh, uh, in the country is in Chicago, right. yep. and the food is was absolutely amazing. So I would say that amazing. Um, so obviously you traveled across the U.S. You're talking to immigrants. You're mm. talking to kids of immigrants. Yeah. Another place that you went was New Orleans, mm -hmm. where there's a huge Vietnamese community. Sure. 
And we're going to watch a clip where you're talking to Cindy Wynn. Yeah. And she's a city council member in New Orleans, mm -hmm. East New Orleans. And you're asking her in this clip about her immigration story. Let's sure. watch it. Do you remember that day of leaving with too young? Came over when I was five years old. Oh, wow. Thought I was going on a vacation. On vacation? Exactly. <laughs> you know, I was like, you're five years old. You don't yeah, think, yeah, yeah. You know, you don't think something is wrong. No, of course. You're yeah, five. And my dad was very particular about it. He was just like, just get on my back. And I remember riding my dad's back, running to the boat. And then once I got on the boat, it was just so crowded. Yeah. And we had limited food. My mom was pregnant. Sister was sick. Yeah. And, um, and she's like, you were the only one that was just full of energy. <laughs> Going on vacation. I was on vacation, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, it's been a very 43-year vacation now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a 43-year vacation. Can I change my mind? I might have to say Vietnamese <laughs> food. In, it was so good. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I had to do an interview, but I'm going to eat. I'm a chef. I'm going to eat. I know good food when I see it. I'm change this man, answer. every question he asked, he had his mouth full. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was great. Um, but speaking of immigration, yeah. we know it's fraud. Mm -hmm. This is no secret, yeah. especially in this country. Mm. Travel bans, walls, border walls. How did this play into your decision uh, mm. to talk to immigrants and kids of immigrants about their food traditions? One of the blessings about being a black man is that you are challenged constantly. And this idea with fall narrative about you, about your tribe, mm. is constantly peddled about you that is false. So we knew when all this stuff was, you know, when people talk nonsense about immigrants, I'm like, okay, I've been through that before. You know a false narrative when you see it, right? Mm -hmm. So as a creative person, it would be, it's almost too simplistic to say, I don't like what's going on for me. Mm. So you, you have to like, how can I flip it? How can I make it delicious, sticky? I look at it as a recipe, right? Uh, and include people to show real America. Because first of all, unless you're Native American, we're all immigrants. So this idea, this idea that, you know, we are 13% of the population now, right? But we are 43% of all small businesses. This idea that we're lazy and we're stealing and all that. You, we, it's, a, it's a joke. You can't be 13% of the population and 43% of all businesses. That means that someone is lying about us. And also know in terms of like the food. Think about every meal we've had today. Everyone here in the audience. It has an immigrant origin. Mm -hmm. So it's important to tell with no passport, real America, a diverse America, um, and a delicious American. <laughs> Washington, D.C. actually happens to be a haven for a huge immigrant population, especially East Africans. Um, and you went to Washington, D.C. to visit the Ethiopian community there. Let's take a look at that. When I think about Washington, D.C., yes, it's the home of politics of the U.S. and runs so much of the Western world. But for me, I look at it as the capital of the Ethiopian diaspora. Amharic is one of the biggest languages spoken in DC. It's also where you can get injera made with real teff, Berbera, great coffee, and where immigrant culture, specifically Ethiopian immigrant culture, is celebrated the most. 
VC was the place that I truly started to identify as Ethiopian. So walk us through this. You said DC is the place where you started to really identify as Ethiopian. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, I think when you're adopted, um, for me, like you have, you know, especially being born in Ethiopia and then be adopted to Sweden, you know, like we were not the only black kids on the block or in the neighborhood. Try the city, you know what I mean? And so it was very clear who our family were. We were, but... Um, Ethiopian culture was just not in our city. Mm. And my mom was like, um, you know, trying to teach us about black culture, and then if we got to Ethiopian culture, great, but, you know, it could come through like, Stevie, Maria Makeba, Michael Jackson, (laughs) the Cosbys, uh, whatever. But Ethiopia was just not, you know, it's before internet, so there was no way, no connective tissues, and many, maybe once, uh, you know, every other year we went to Stockholm and it was a gathering with other Ethiopian kids. And it mm-hmm. always looked like these nice white, white ladies would have these Ethiopian dragon kids. We would just want to be in the corner by ourselves. And also, you know, when you grow up as an adopted kid and you don't, you lose, uh, we lost the language. We lost our Amharic, right? Mm-hmm. We lost the dance. We lost so many cultural things that were other, that as an immigrant you actually take, take for granted and mm-hmm. you live with. Yeah. Um, so there was some things that we gained, of course, and there were some things that we lost. Uh, and I always wanted to sort of, how can I search for that? How can I get that back? And um, DC really helped me with that. How did you do it? Did you go to restaurants and say, I want to learn about how you make certain foods? Or how did, it, when it, you it went was, to DC? It was many things. You know, like, um, you know, when Ethiopians see each other, we say habish. Habish from Habishistan, which is really the Eritrea, Ethiopia, that horn of Africa. And in New York, you started to see more and more Ethiopian restaurants, more and more Ethiopian. But then they say, you know, for real Ethiopian food, you got to go to D.C. Uh-huh. So it was a little bit, uh, uh, you know, and it was just, we just jumped on the train or, or the bus. And it was like four hours later, it was like literally somewhere else. And, and um, it was exciting to me, um, you know, eating with your hands for the first time, really, you know. Yeah. Uh, one of the things with Ethiopian culture, yes, it's not been colonized, but that also expresses itself in its food, right? It's very distinct. You might have had a Moroccan meal and ate with knife and fork. With Ethiopian food, you're going to eat with your hands, so you're going to remember that. And that taste when a real injera is made with teff, it's a little bit more sour, it's a little bit darker, but you will never forget it. So that helped setting Ethiopian food aside, and I, w- I wanted to come back to that. And I saw myself for the first time. You also mentioned in this episode that it wasn't just D.C. where you found your Ethiopianness mm. or helped kind of figure out what your Ethiopian identity was, but it was also uh, the woman that you married who yeah. really helped you figure yeah, my, that out. My wife, Maya, she really um, still whipping, whipping my Ethiopian side into shape. I still got, <laughs> I'm still years behind, but, but she's really done an amazing job um, with, you know, teaching my son, our son, and, and, and teaching me still about traditions. And, you know, you can't, and she, I think she's just worried that I would embarrass her at weddings and stuff like that, <laughs> because you can't go to Ethiopian, you know, event and don't know your tribal dances, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I'm imagining you, like, in front of a mirror with her, like, she's like, do it again, yes. do it again, yes. run that back. Yes. yes, Maya. So, and it's very distinct, which tribe, and, and uh, 
Also, certain things like coffee, you put fresh coffee and you put butter in your coffee, right? Yeah. I know Brooklyn is doing it now for yeah, $8 dollar are, a cup. That's right. But before Brooklyn, there was actually Ethiopia about 4,000 years before. <laughs> I love Brooklyn. I love Brooklyn. But still, just saying. He gives out hipster Brooklyn. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's just things like that. Like, it's just like it was beautiful when, when the music came on. It was just so natural for you. The, the mambo and the merengue and the mm-hmm. culture is just so natural, right? For Ethiopian culture, it's the same thing. Coffee, you don't, if you go to someone's house to have coffee, you know that you're starting with green coffee beans, you're roasting them, you're pounding them, and then you let it drip. In between, you eat popcorn, of all things. Yes. Like, these are things that are so innate in the culture. And those are the things that I was lost in translation for. It didn't matter that I knew Japanese food or French food. It had no currency in my own culture. Mm. I think it happens a lot with adoption. And it was not my parents' fault at all. It was just either I was so busy working or, or I didn't search for it. So my sister, my Ethiopian sister, she was really the one who pushed me like we have to ah. learn more. And in the same era, we met our birth father. Mm-hmm. We met our sisters and brothers. We have eight sisters and brothers in Ethiopia. Wow. They're all uh, gone through school now. They go to, some of them go to university. Some of them are out there working. So if she wouldn't have pushed me on this, this other side, the rich life that I got really from our family, uh, we wouldn't have known about. So it's something like keep searching. And you can start at any age. Anytime I meet someone adopted, I'm like, listen, it doesn't matter if you're 36 and you, you got the urge, do it because it will enrich your life in ways that I can't describe it. It's your journey. You got to go for it. Mm. Well, we've established that you're Ethiopian. Yes. <laughs> you're also Swedish. Sweetiopian, yes. Sweetiopian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Rican, it. Sweetiopian. Um, and you have a soul food restaurant yeah. right here in Harlem, yeah. a mecca for African-American culture yes. in the United States. Did you get any pushback from the black mm-hmm. community, from the African-American community for opening up Red Rooster? You know, when Maya and I moved from um, Hell's Kitchen to Harlem, so Red Rooster is eight years old now, but it's really 18 years old. It took me, I did eight years of studying my community, learning about my community, really studying it. Harlem is the capital of black culture in the world, mm-hmm. right? So when we think about African-American culture, it always comes back to Harlem. I had to learn about how did the cornbread actually taste, you know, at church? (laughs) Not in the restaurant. Why was the jerk chicken much better in the park when there's big signs that say no cooking in the park, although every Sunday, (laughs) you know. So as long as I could connect those dots and culturally understand, um, everything else would come. But you didn't get any pushback? Like, what's this Sweetiopian doing <laughs> opening up yeah, a soul food no, restaurant in Harlem? I, you know, when I leave the restaurant, when we walk in Harlem, and I'm just leaving tonight, it's going to be anything from, like, how come the chicken is 28 bucks? Can my uncle <laughs> get a job? Last time, I didn't like, I didn't like the drink last time. Um, you know, when are you having jazz again? For me, it's like, it's like MCs coming at me. And sometimes for my wife, it's, it's tricky, right? But I said, you know what would be worse? If no one would say anything. Mm-hmm. The worst thing would be if there's no feedback, mm-hmm. right? And 
being an entrepreneur and thinking about something that has never been is hard. It's supposed to be hard. If I'm borrowing three hours of your time, we better deliver because you can be anywhere. If we cook well, the response will be go, like the audience will say yes, and we'll be in sync. If we don't cook well, they will let us know too. <laughs> your show, No Passports Required. Uh, it's not just about eating other people's food, it's about eating it with them. Yeah. Um, we've been talking a lot about how divided our country is. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, it's not hard to hold in your head, you know, someone loving Mexican food and also very much wanting to build a wall. So like, is there something naive about the idea that by breaking bread together, we can break down some of these divisions? Well, there's a lot of stuff there that I have to mention. First of all, uh, food and culture, it's also about authorship and agency of our shit, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to document that in a certain way. So Mexican food was not invented by Taco Bell, mm -hmm. right? And I know it was introduced to our country that way, right? And because it's such a massive thing, a lot of people start with the wrong starting point. So the authorship and the agencies of where it came from is extremely important that we do know that because we are extremely detailed how we know European history. Sometimes we know European history more than we know our own history. So for me, No Passport Required is about putting people on TV that are iconic in their neighborhoods and holding up neighborhoods all over America through food. So unless we start putting these real conversation and broadcast them and document them, no one will ever find out. We will never find out about each other. So I don't know, yes, the idea might be naive, but until there's a better idea on the board, I will keep doing it. <laughs> That's Marcus Samuelson, celebrity chef, his restaurant, Red Roosters, right here in Harlem. You can catch him on his PBS show, No Passport Required, which you can stream on PBS with something called PBS Passport. Yeah, ironically yeah. enough. You need a passport now. You right? do, that's a little strange. But anyway, thank you so much for, for being with me. us, Marcus. You're, you're great. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Google Home Hub. It's a new kind of display that syncs up with Google Photos, so you can automatically share all those family photos without having to actually share them. That's help at a glance with Google Home Hub, available now at the Google Store and leading retailers. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from the YMCA, offering programs and support to give every kid a chance because the zip code you're born into shouldn't determine your destiny. Learn about the impact of your donation at ymca.net slash for a better us. When the world seems out of hand, you can count on the StoryCorps podcast for your dose of humanity. Unscripted conversations between real people about the things that matter most. This season, 12 all-new episodes about reunions and what it means to connect at this moment in our nation's history. Episodes are available every Tuesday.
All right, we're about to do our next segment. Uh, it's a segment we do a lot of times on the show. It's one of our favorite segments. It's Shireen's mom's favorite segment. No, this one isn't. It's the one after. Oh. Uh, mommy. Is it your mom's? Miss Jeanette, is it your favorite segment? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's called Ask Code Switch. To help us with that. Uh, we've invited someone on who just started an advice podcast of her own. It's called Sip on this. I just like saying that. <laughs> Sip on this. She's a comedian and she's on TBS's Full Frontal with Samantha B. She's one of the correspondents. Here she is at the Republican National Convention. Watch her in action. Can I get you to say three words for me? Maybe. All right, let's try it. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. All lives matter. Oh, so close. Can I get you to say the words Black Lives Matter? Everybody's life matters. How about just lives matter? People matter. Black Lives Matter is an evil organization. What if their slogan was, stop police brutality against black people? Okay, then I would say, so are you, do you support police brutality against white people? <laughs> Apollo, give it up for Ashley Nicole Black. anywhere without drums. <laughs> Take me with you. Take me with you. Uh, <laughs> so you spent the last couple of years out there talking to people about race yeah. and politics. And this is something we're trying to do on the podcast. Do you have any you know, advice for us, best practices, how to do this? Oh, you know what? Uh, you have to talk to people with an open heart. And not all the people make it easy to keep your heart open. <laughs> You have to, like, get your heart workout in <laughs> and just try to keep it open as much as you can. Did anybody say Black Lives Matter without a caveat? You know what? Actually, uh, one person would not say it in the video. Wow. And after we turned off the camera, he said, of course Black Lives Matter, but I live in a neighborhood where if people saw me say that on TV, I would not be safe. Wow. Mm. That's wild. Yeah. Let's get to some questions, y'all. On that note. <laughs> question number one. Hi, Code Switch. My name is Elena Williams. I've lived in New York City since 2010. Uh, as I've grown into my 30s, um, a lot of my friends have moved away, uh, gone to different cities, and work has taken up more and more of my time. Most of the people I work with are white, and so I've really found myself missing that group camaraderie uh, that I had with people of color during college and in my 20s, and I'm just wondering what's the best way to make new friends and meet new people um, of color as we're going through this crazy time that we are. Ashley. Well, I mean, she's in Harlem, so first of all, walk down the street, yeah, right. babe. Like. <laughs> Just say hello to the people on the street. Some of them are probably friendly. Um, <laughs> so you got a 30% chance. I will say, like, 
this is very specific to my experience, but I have moved a lot because of the kind of work that I do. And wherever I go, I just try to find an improv class, a dance class. If you have shared interests with people, it's so much easier to make friends because you kind of get over that like fake part. Like if you went to pottery class, the other people at pottery class are like also nerds. So no one's going to be like, oh, I don't want to talk to that pottery girl. Like you're all already at pottery class. It's already too late. (laughs) Just be there. So go to Alvin Ailey, take a dance class. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I agree with that. Um, I moved to Los Angeles from the Bay Area. I had my network in the Bay Area. And the way that I... And I was going to work at NPR in Los Angeles. So I knew this could be a possibility. This could be my life. (laughs) Um, And the way that I made sure I had a diverse group of friends was I played capoeira. Does anybody know what capoeira is? It's an Afro-Brazilian martial art. And these people... Were, became my family. They came to my wedding. They, I mean, it was a wonderful thing. We had this shared hobby, this shared interest. But it wasn't just any shared interest. It was a shared interest that I knew would draw in a diverse group yes. of people. See, that's the thing. Like, that's what you want to kind of focus on. Mm-hmm. And New York is a weird place, right? I lived in Brooklyn for 10 years. Shout out to Bestar. Um, I've been working for 10 years. Um, and... Like, because you have so much interaction with people, just because of the volume of people, it often camouflages how attenuated those connections are. Like, you're not having real deep interactions with people, but you're having a lot of them. Um, And so you can actually be really lonely and not realize it. And so, like, I'm incredibly sympathetic to what she's going going through, but also you might need to be really intentional about you know, looking for friends. And also what I love about New Yorkers is New Yorkers are real. So Mm -hmm. I grew up in LA and you'll meet someone in LA and they'll be like, oh my God, I love you. (laughs) You are the best thing that's ever happened. Let's be best friends forever. And you'll never see that person. That's true. That is true. Ever. Whereas in New York, someone will be like, yo, you're cool. Let's go get coffee. And they will actually call you for coffee, which was shocking to me when I moved here. So like, it is actually kind of easy to make friends here because if you say to someone, hey, I want to go here, there will actually show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just have to put yourself out there. Elena, you got to work as hard at your social life as you do at work. And if you do and you're intentional about it and you get a hobby where other brown folks are involved, uh, you will diversify your friend group. Go to your brown pottery class. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, when you said pottery class, I was like, There oh. might be one. We are varied and nuanced. I'm sure. <laughs> true, true. We are not a monolith stream. We contain right. multitudes, okay? <laughs> Let's go to the next question. All right, next question. Hi, Code Switch. I'm Genevieve Marcy. I live in Brooklyn, and I'm a student at CUNY. As a white-passing Latina with close friends, relatives, and in-laws who are non-black people of color, what's my role in calling out racism, and especially anti-blackness? It's a tough line to walk, and I can't tell if it feels awkward because I have no place to tell, say, my Dominican uncle about racism, or if it's just awkward to confront people. How does one walk the line? So Genevieve wants to know how you confront relatives who make anti-black comments. Shireen, I know you have feelings about Well, this. this is a passion of mine to talk about this <laughs> on the podcast, about how the Latinx community does not talk enough about anti-blackness. Here's like one example. I'll, I'll just think of something from my own family. Um, my cousins are all having kids. <laughs> and she really about to put her family on blast. <laughs> oh my God. 
at the Apollo. And when, whenever, you know, there's a photo of a baby or, you know, we're looking on Facebook at one of the new babies, somebody will inevitably say, if it's a light baby or a pale baby, oh, mira, you know, la blanquita, que bonita, la blanquita, que preciosa, la blanquita. And in that moment, that's a moment where you can be like, you know what, Titi? Why can't you just say that's a beautiful baby? Like, why does the baby have to be white and beautiful? Like, that's just a beautiful baby. And your titi is probably going to say, Ay, mija, I didn't mean anything by that. You know, I didn't mean anything by that. And you're going to say, now, actually, I don't know if you didn't mean anything by that, mm. number one. <laughs> and number two, if there was another child in the room who was darker and had darker skin, what do you think they would think? you meant by this. They would think that you meant being white is more beautiful, being white is precious, being whiter is better, and that's not what you want them to think. So I think in that moment, I mean, you can do things like that. Ashley, I want to throw this to you because I'm monologuing here. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I understand the concern of like, is it not my place to talk about racism because maybe she deals with it less than some of her family members, mm -hmm. but it's everybody's yeah. place to call out racism. I don't care how blonde and blue-eyed you are. It's, you know, and it, not everything has to be a huge confrontation. You can just be like, yo, that was racist and, you know, keep it moving. <laughs> like, just keep making your plate. Um, you can also model behavior, which like, this is what my family did that was so powerful. I truly did not realize they were doing it until I was like 24. I'm not even kidding. When we would like go swimming or whatever, we'd get a little tan. My aunties would be like, oh, you guys have been swimming. You're so dark. You're so beautiful. Look at my chocolate baby. So beautiful. And everything was like dark is so beautiful. Dark is so beautiful. Yes. We watch TV. My mom is very fair skinned. And every time she saw a dark skinned woman on TV, which was not often because I was a child in the 90s, mm -hmm. she'd be like, oh, she's so beautiful. Oh, look at her beautiful skin. I love her skin. I grew up thinking that my mom was jealous that she wasn't dark like me. <laughs> Truly, it wasn't until I was in grad school and I was like learning about colors and I was like, she tricked me. <laughs> so like, you know, you should definitely call out your family members. But if you don't feel comfortable, like when you're talking to your nieces and nephews and little ones and you can just model the behavior and tell them they're beautiful and say it loud enough so your uncle hears you also. We talk about this a lot on the podcast, too. Like there's value to calling people out, even if you don't change their minds. Right. Like the you want to create friction, right? So like if someone is going to say some bullshit, they can anticipate that you're going to call them out for that bullshit. And maybe they don't say that bullshit because they don't want to listen to your mouth. Yep. And that is very practical anti-racism, right? You are changing the norm in the space, right? You're changing the sort of temperature in the room. Um, and so like if, if then no one says the thing, you may not have changed their opinion at all. But that thing is not being said. And that's a win. Yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. Also, like, there's more of us than there are of them. If we work together, <laughs> we could get really far. And then, like, you know, once everyone can vote and we have equality and all that, then we can go back to fighting over who's prettier. Like, let's just save that for later. <laughs> Thank have, you, Genevieve. Thank you, Genevieve. We have question one more question. Three. Hello. My name is Ron Serino. When I left New York to move back to the South, Several lifelong New Yorkers, who are also white, asked me, why do you want to move there? It's so racist. My question is, why do some white New Yorkers 
think that racism is only or primarily in the South. Look around New York, Listen. wherever I went in the city, I saw housing segregation, employment segregation, and environmental racism is everywhere. All right. First of all, I'm taken with just like the really nice cameras these people seem to have just yes. outside of their houses. Very high production value, Ron. Um, <laughs> I think that everyone wants to think the problem is somewhere else, so mm. it makes it easier for them. Um, I personally have never lived in the South. I've always worked in, lived and worked in very liberal spaces. And of course, I've dealt with a ton of racism in my life because like everyone is racist. I have racist thoughts. Like if you're in America, you're racist. So like <laughs> you can point to another section and say like, oh, the South is more racist. Oh, Arizona is more racist. Oh, your mom's house is more racist. But like, <laughs> what does anyone get out of that? You know, I think if you're looking for racism, just look inside your heart. <laughs> in there. <laughs> Ashley Nicole Black, everybody. You can see her on Full Frontal with Samantha B. And you can hear her on her podcast called Sip on This. Come Thank you sip. so much, Ashley. <laughs> Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Bobby. Now we are at Shireen's mom's favorite part. That's right. Hi, mommy. We got a real ass Grammy nominated musician behind us. Yep. So we're going to defer to him. And he's going to give us the song Giving Him Life tonight. What's the song? Well, when I was 12 years old, in the Melrose Projects, 681 Cortland Avenue on East 153rd Street in the Bronx, Tito Puente came to my neighborhood and played with his orchestra. And when I saw that orchestra, uh, it changed my life. It's the reason I'm here today at the Apollo with all of you. And he wrote this song in 1955, and then it was a hit back then, and then Carlos Santana recorded it years later, okay? But I need your help to play it, so everybody clap with me this rhythm. It's what we call La Clave. From Africa to Cuba to Puerto Rico to the Dominican Republic, Haiti. The rest of the Caribbean, New Orleans, Louisiana, and all the way straight to Harlem.
gotta go over the house, even though I can't move. Don't go anywhere, though. Don't go I can't anywhere. move. Before we go, we have some people we have to recognize. Thank you so much to Jennifer Sendrow and the whole Work It Festival staff who made the show possible. We appreciate y'all. Also, thank you to our co-sponsors, WNYC. When you support your local member station, you support podcasts like this one. Also, big thanks to the NPR events team, especially Ali Prescott, our yes. amazing events manager. As well as Ian Baldessari and Jessica Goldstein, who helped make this happen. Big thanks to Adolfo Cuevas and Nancy Raquel Mirabal, director of the Latina Latino Studies Program at the University of Maryland for help with um, some of the answers to the questions. We got to shout out Neil Carruth and Anya Grumman from NPR's programming team. And thank you to our behind-the-scenes teammates who helped make this show happen. Yes. Our editors tonight are Leah Danella, Sammy Yenigan, and Steve Drummond. Our producer is Maria Paz Gutierrez. Our stage director is Kumari Devarajan. And our intern, Andrea Henderson, is here heading up social media for the show. And she looks fabulous, by the way. Always, them. always. Shout-out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Karen Grigsby-Bates, Kat Chow, Adrian Florido, and Walter Ray Watson. And finally, thank you, our audience at the Apollo. Give it up for yourselves. Y'all could have been anywhere tonight and y'all decided to rock with us. We appreciate it. We know the MTN be on some BS. So thank you so much. Yes. Let's all go out dancing after this. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. Apollo! Be easy. Everybody, let's go to Eastern Parkway! Guy Raz here, and this week on the TED Radio Hour, we're exploring ways to seek out joy in some places you might expect, and in some places you might not. Where joy hides, check it out this week on the TED Radio Hour, wherever you get your podcasts.